I want to talk to you about about the devil. We can invite him on if you want. <laughs> I've got I've got his Skype ID right here. Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Right Where You're Sitting Now. I'm Ken. Um, I've been doing this podcast for many years. We, we had a really, really long break. Six years, I think, is is the longest break I've ever had from anything. But uh, we decided that the world has changed. And what, what better time for a, a podcast about weird shit to come back and kind of distract you from the, uh, the uh, I don't know what you call it, Anyway, joining me <laughs> um, is Josh. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good, man. You know, it's it's a break from the weirdness with more weirdness. With, it is. With regular humdrum weirdness that we're used to, rather than the craziness that's outside the door. So if you're new to the show, I mean, you can listen to all of our back episodes. We've done quite a few different podcasts, but this has always been the kind of, um, what do they call it, flagship podcast of, of, of sittingnow.co.uk, which is our web home. Um, at sittingnow.co.uk I should probably be a bit more uh, advertiser friendly I suppose um, <laughs> if you want to uh, check out the old episodes you can get them on iTunes and Spotify uh, generally we talk about uh, the occult subculture, counterculture general weirdness hopefully not about conspiracy theories but you know we will yeah it's bound to come up at some point um, so this week we have uh, we, we thought we'd come back strong we thought we'd talk about the man himself uh, the devil uh, weirdly we've never really covered the devil uh, on sitting now it seems like such an obvious thing to talk about but we've we've never actually you know we're like 40 or 8, 9 episodes through and we haven't really ever brought him up but um, yeah so we've brought in kind of one of the experts on experts? experts on the subject uh, Mr Nicholas Shrek uh, Nicholas Shrek's an expert on uh, the devil Lucifer, Satan, call him what you will he's also uh, an expert on Charles Manson Although we don't really cover that, we'll hopefully maybe we'll have him back on the show for an, another episode about that. He's just uh, released a new book or a revised version of an old book, I should say. Um, he's just a, well, he's just put pre-orders up for it anyway. Um, he's also a musician, and we play one of his tracks, um, brand new tracks, in this episode. Um, Dude, this guy's like he's all over the place. It's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like an expert in everything. I really enjoyed talking to him too, man. He was just really interesting and fun. Yeah, definitely. He's um, he's actually very good humoured and um, like willing to kind of discuss subjects that I think a lot of people would sort of shy away from. Do you agree? Oh yeah, and uh, willing to say pretty unpopular opinions <laughs> about them too, <laughs> which a lot of them I shared with them. You know, I thought I thought it was really I don't know. I, I was thinking about this conversation for days afterward, Ken. It was really cool. Yeah, definitely. It was. Uh, He's, it's been, it was a great one to come back on, definitely. Um, he's, uh, kind of embodies the spirit in some ways of this show and, uh, mm. uh moving forward, especially. So, uh, just to do a bit of housekeeping, I suppose, we are back properly, uh, weekly. Um, we plan to do this indefinitely, this show. And, um, we also have some video projects planned as well. So they'll be coming up 
within the next couple of months because they take a bit longer than a podcast but um yeah so we've got next week we've got damien eccles coming on damien eccles is a former i guess he's not really a member of the west memphis three he was one of the west memphis three um turned occultist and he's got a new book out and we're going to talk to him about uh angel magic and the enochian uh, system and things like that um so yeah that's gonna be cool we've got some other old old flames returning as well um so yeah just generally we're back and uh looking for <laughs> looking forward to doing some more episodes it's been a long time i'm ready to stretch out my legs and get and talk to people yeah this pandemic man it's made it really hard oh, <laughs> really hard just to talk to people yeah definitely it's really annoying um so yeah we're back and uh back every week so subscribe on itunes subscribe on spotify uh, or just come to the site sittingnow.co.uk um, for your weekly dose of uh, sitting nowness. And uh, yeah, let's cut to the interview with Nicholas Schreck. Uh, Nicholas, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? I'm a musician, singer, songwriter, author, and filmmaker and um spiritual teacher and i think um if if people are aware of my work they already know that and if they're not they can easily find out through the miracle of the internet yeah excellent. <laughs> um so you're in berlin and obviously berlin was and germany in general was seen as the uh the kind of shining example of 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 coronavirus management uh how did how did the virus kind of affect you personally and you know what's your kind of take on the kind of world's response to it, you know? Well, I, sh- I should put that in context. Actually, the politicization of the coronavirus, I gave an interview here on a German, on a Berlin radio show program, Radio On, that is hosted by Adrian Shepard here. And it was an interview held at the Fuhrer bunker, at the ruins of, of Hitler's bunker. And I made if you know he was asking about it was the first interview i've given since the covid 19 epidemic or pandemic started and i merely made a offhand reference when he was saying the host that in berlin and in germany that the you know that the government has handled it remarkably well and we've been very lucky to have a relatively low death and infection rate and he he asked me why that was, and I said in an offhand manner, I said it's the difference between a country run by a reality TV show host and a country run by a former quantum uh, physics research scientist. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's obvious. There's nothing controversial about that. However, it aroused such a wave of hatred from fans of the reality TV host uh, that it I. I until that moment, I mean, I have seen the conspiracy theories and the the obsessive politicization and, and the projection of idiot ideologies on what is nothing more than a virus like has existed since the beginning of time. And there have been many, many pandemics in human history, several that have wiped out whole civilizations like the Mayan civilization we now know was destroyed by a pandemic and you know there's nothing actually unusual about a pandemic but this so until you know i paid attention to the lunatic fringe conspiracy theories about it but until i actually voice said that 
to me, relatively mild statement that obviously a scientist is more capable of dealing with it efficiently than a, an entertainment personality and real estate tycoon. Um, you know, then I saw that uh, that lifted this stone, you know, and I looked and saw what was crawling underneath it and the insane hatred of of that statement and of any criticism of him and of and 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 the belief that the virus is a hoax and you know and, and as i said on this other show i won't even bother to repeat the idiotic conspiracy fantasies which is what i prefer to call them rather than conspiracy theories because they're not based on even a, the remotest trace of reality so um i think in historical context, the most important, I, I personally have been able to deal with it quite well. Uh, obviously, all I had several major concerts, one at the Wave Gothic Treffen, this Gothic festival held in Germany, and, and several other concerts that were held to celebrate the 35th anniversary of my former band, Radio Werewolf, were canceled. I was due to go to Los Angeles to begin work on a documentary about my research into the Manson phenomenon with Michael Brenner, who is Charlie's son. All of those things were canceled and pretty much every, you know, everything of a film and music performance basis. I'm doing a dance and music theatrical piece with my partner, Luana Rossetti. That was, you know, that also is put on hold till next year. But other than that, um, I have managed to weather it quite well. And I've been in the studio recording a lot and I've tried to make the most of it creatively because having this focused time for a musician is in many ways a blessing. Mm. Um, so I've dealt with it personally well, but I think the significant thing about this is what it has revealed, frankly, about the depths of human stupidity, mm -hmm. the way that it has been dealt with. I mean, in your own, in old Blighty itself, when the pubs opened and the, the completely reckless, you know, refusal to, to treat this as a serious health issue is astonishing. And it seems particularly in our two homelands, the UK and America, this kind of insanity, uh, the, the refusal to take it seriously is almost suicidal. And I think this points to many decades of miseducation through the internet. And I think it proves that really we have entered a new dark age where people are actually willing to die based on completely false information because they are no longer, I, I wouldn't even say educated enough, intelligent enough to know what is true and not true. And I would put the blame for that on the internet and it's creation of algorithm created little bubbles of belief that have nothing to do with reality. And I think we see very serious and fatal consequences to this now, which are very different than people believing in a flat earth or that there was no moon landing or whatever other nonsense they believe. So I think in the future, when people look at the history of this, the two things, the civil unrest that it created everywhere and many for, from left-wing and right-wing zealots because basically human beings like children left inside for too long got bored mm -hmm. and and they you know they their their most primitive 
and resentful and raging emotions were whipped up in their boredom. I think that's a very clear historical consequence of the of the lockdown. And then secondly, just we I think we need to now look long and hard at the deficit of human intelligence and of, of ability to grasp what is true and what is not true. I think that even, you know, of course, as bad as the deaths and the illness that this has caused, the long-range consequences are we we have now seen the abyss of human idiocy in a way that's almost unimaginable. And as cynical as I was before it, to see how governments and and citizens are dealing with it is astonishing. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's just... One thing I've noticed about the um, people being stuck inside is that you've really seen these kind of lines, political lines being drawn, where people have sort of kind of maniacally gone to the left or maniacally gone to the right, and that's that's been really fascinating to watch in some ways. But it, it's almost like like you were saying that that the sort of quality of knowledge is almost uh, deteriorated. And I remember Robert Anton Wilson used to always talk about this thing called the conspiracy of the stupid, where uh, whereas if you'd kind of if you deteriorate the level of education, eventually people will start to believe this kind of these false narratives, essentially. And I think we're really, really seeing that at the moment in, with this. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Th- I think I think I mean, I have myself from my own personal experience and biography, having been the target of many conspiracy theories since I first began my career, practically in the early 80s. You know, and and having people believe the most insane conspiracy theories about me, and dur- you know, during the satanic panic in the eighties and nineties, and to this day, and perhaps even more intensely to this day, although in a more diluted manner, having seen what it's like to be on the other side of insane conspiracy theories being projected on you, I have watched this pandemic of stupidity of spreading for decades and now it has reached a terminal level which i think is a threat to anything like a sane civilization frankly so i think you know it's easy to be sarcastic about it but i think it is a real danger and i'm not being hyperbolic uh the themes of my work about the end of the world and living in a new dark age were part of what i was doing with radio werewolf and the werewolf order in the 80s, because I foresaw this already coming, and that was in the Reagan era, which, you know, seems like the classical age of golden Athens compared to the <laughs> idiocracy we have now, Yeah, but it was bad enough. So, yeah, so that, yeah, so, I mean, from, from a completely objective level, there's nothing so historically unique about this pandemic as i've said it's happened many times before what is unique is that people are willing to die based on completely groundless ideological zealotry and and again like you said this divisive going to either the extreme right or the extreme left and turning absolutely every aspect of human life into some politicized vested interest cause that is that seems fairly um unprecedented in history that that average ordinary people are all so intensely committed to various political causes that they really don't even understand the origins of the context of or the purpose of just you know almost group think in the Orwellian sense on a grand scale and and equally on the so-called right 
and the so-called left, because really neither of them fit the historical meanings of right and left anymore. They're, they've mutated into some bizarre new madness, you know. I was just talking to my sister about this last night. It's really weird uh, that something could be politicized. That's just a straight science, you know, like a question of putting on your mask or not. We were kind of talking about this because there's this thing about uh, critical thought that's happening where uh, you kind of you kind of land at a certain you read an article and that's the one that you fucking stick with from then on. You know what I mean? Like For some well, reason, yeah, they, anything they, that contradicts that makes you embarrassed. Exactly. Yes. The I don't think that the average person today even knows what critical thinking is. The point of education is not to stuff your mind with data and tell you what to think, but to teach you how to think. Um, in the in the words of the Sufi author Idria Shah, who lived in Britain, um, learning how to learn is necessary to even know how to approach reality. And most people just are, are like on the most infantile level of responding to an emotional trigger and sticking with that no matter what. And And the horrifying thing is they don't even seem to care whether it's on the left, and they're, to me, completely unscientific and irrational beliefs that are based on nothing more than emotion, exactly like the right. Yes. And, and, and they're, you know, they're just flip sides of the same coin. But a wholesale rejection of science and rationality and objectivity and historical context is what's going on. And as you said, it is amazing that the that something like a scientific fact is now being politicized and it presents a very dark path for the future which i don't think will stop yeah it's 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 incredibly worrying i mean even because i've always been of the mind that you should test you know everything really you know you should test the theories of the left and the right you know you should um but it seems nowadays if you dare to question either of these groups you be, you become part of this cancel culture you become labeled right it, it, well, seems, it seems labeling well, song, is, is, is a new the song that you're the song that you're going to play that just came out on my new ep they actually ends with a reference to cancel culture uh, and um and these songs were actually recorded in the past few weeks, and they and they are definitely, with without being consciously planned out, they are they are capturing like an X-ray of how I feel about where the world and particularly America is at this point. You know what? Let's play the song now instead of at the end because this feels like a good place okay, to sure. place to play it. So we'll play it now and then we'll come back. And I want to talk to you about about the devil. But last night they nearly got me By they I mean Illuminati Who are being very naughty They sent a silver Maserati Or an Indigo Bugatti after me They hoped that they forgot me But oh no! Spill the beans 
is about the secret scenes that I have lately seen upon the internet. The scanner tell the steeple about the lizard people who the nasty crooked Clintons met. You and on on fortune taught me who to hate. I'm black billed on Benghazi, red billed on. So, Nicholas, what I want to talk to you about um, is in your book, The Satanic Screen, you have a section where you talk quite extensively about kind of the perception of the devil or perception of Satan and how that's been kind of warped and um, kind of misused and how the kind of historical context of Satan and Lucifer and these names, how they've been kind of misused. And I'd love to talk to you about that subject um now if you're yeah. if you're okay with that but could you talk yeah, could, could you just talk to the idea of satan like where it comes from who you know why it's been kind of um you know changed in the way it has been um if we could talk about right. that that'd be great well yeah what was there anything in particular about it that's a very wide range yeah so, i realize that's very broad isn't I, it? Uh, I would like to talk about um like the historical roots of it, uh, like it's used in the Old Testament and why it's different from the New Testament. Right. All right. Well, I think to put it in context, the problem, as soon as you say these words, Satan, God, Jesus, they are so loaded with centuries and thousands of years of emotional weight and meaning that has been projected onto them. But very few people that are believing Christians or Satanists or occultists or or followers of any particular religious path ever look into the historical roots of what these words mean, where these concepts come from. They just and and this ties into this kind of ignorance of conspiracy theory thinking. They 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 feel good about it, therefore they go with it. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. And I have had the experience of 
now that I have made efforts in several interviews and in the satanic screen to really clarify what is the devil, what is Satan, what is Lucifer, the resistance to that, sort of like what I was saying about my innocuous comment about the coronavirus being real, um, it has created a lot of controversy because both Christians and so-called Satanists of various stripes and um, congregations have a vested interest in believing a lie about it. So what you were saying about the difference between the Old and the New Testament, I think the best way to, to get into the topic is, first of all, I have to say this, from my personal spiritual practice and point of view, I was a committed devil worshiper from being very young in the 1960s during the occult revival of that time until, and I, and I, and I sort of started losing interest in it and becoming increasingly less um, exclusively a devil worshiper sort of in the mid early to early to mid nineties. But, you know, for that entire time, I, I say without any exaggeration, I really don't think there are many people who looked as deeply into the roots of this thing. And I worshipped it. I served it uh, in the, my early career, 100% believed in it and pushed it and was a part of it and welcomed it into my life and used it in a magical sense in my musical performances and my recordings. Um, so. I needed to know what it was. And so out of the personal urgency of needing to know what it is, I looked very deeply into it. And so what you, so, I mean, I have to make it clear when I was a Satanist, I was not an atheistic Satanist. I, and I still believe there is such a being who mortals have called the Satan, the devil. There is such a being. He exists exactly as this particular being that is called Jehovah or Yahweh. He exists as well. I don't believe he is the creator God. I don't believe he is the, you know, the God of gods. He is a minor God from the area that, you know, was once Judea that is now Palestine. He was a minor war God in that area. That's a historical fact. And I think the way to begin understanding who and what Satan is in that ancient Middle Eastern culture that was in Palestine, there was a pantheon of gods, exactly like the ancient Greeks had their pantheon of gods, or the Northern mythology has theirs, or the Egyptian. There was a pantheon, and Yahweh, Jehovah, was just one. He was not even a particularly major god. He was the war and thunder god of the desert in that particular religious constellation. And he was, which has happened throughout human history many, many times, that particular tribe there adopted him as the only god and mm -hmm. said, you know, there is no other god but that one. But the Politics. Satan... Yeah, it was, it was, it was, there, there's a book I would recommend to anyone who wants to know this called The Invention of God. And it's about how basically this minor God, Yahweh, Jehovah, was promoted by this one particular tribe for political reasons to being the God of all gods. And it's just simply not true. He, Yahweh had a wife. He, you know, he was, he was part of a constellation of gods. 
like every culture has. He was just one. And he had an assistant, which there was a celestial court around Yahweh and around these other gods. And one of the, the now one myth or legend or folktale about the Satan or devil is that he was a fallen angel. Actually, if you look into the ancient Middle Eastern sources, he was not an angel, which is a particular kind of being. An angel just means messenger. It's it's a messenger between the celestial realm and the human realm. He was the Satan, which is a title, not a name. It, it never, it's not, it's not his name, you know, the name on his business card is not Satan. It's, it's a title. Um, the Satan was an adversary, but not in the sense that many occultists and Satanists believe. It didn't mean he was a rebel in any way. It is like the British use of the word adversary to be a lawyer or an attorney, you know? And he, this, the Satan was Jehovah's assistant, and his job was to come to earth to make sure that human beings were obeying yes. Jehovah. He, was, he came to earth to tempt them, but his temptations were not to lead them into sin, as Satanists and Christians almost universally believe today. That's not true. He was testing them. He was like the Stasi or the Gestapo, or I've often compared him to a mafia um, thug who the big boss sends out to test the loyalty of other people in the gang. Uh, he was testing humans, as you see in the story of Job. And that's really one of the few narratives about the devil in the entire Bible, other than his coming to Jesus to tempt him. But in both cases, what does he do? He is serving God. He is God's most faithful and zealous servant. He is in no way the opponent of God or the Antichrist or anything like that. He is actually God's most faithful servant. He comes to earth to test you. I believe he actually exists and he, he still has this cosmic function to this day. But it's almost comical the degree to which Christians and Satanists and even secular people misunderstand what this being is. He is not a force for evil, unless you believe, as I do, that Yahweh is an evil, destructive God, as the Gnostics believe, that he was an imposter God who's actual, actually called Ealdabaoth. If you believe that, then the Satan is evil because he is the most zealous fanatical representative of God. So two other things I should add, and then you can, if you need me to, to go deeper into it. The Satan itself, that word, it does not mean adversary in terms of a rebel. He didn't rebel against God. He serves God. And in Islam, which is just another perspective on this same Middle Eastern <laughs> spiritual tradition, which you find in the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Quran, they're all different perspectives on the same narrative. In Islam, which of course most Christians and Jews haven't bothered to look at the Quran or Islam, in the Islamic tradition, it's made very clear that Iblis, which is the Arabic name for Satan, which is connected to the word diabolus, Iblis is the Arabic form of diabolus or the devil. 
he is very clearly presented as God's most faithful servant, and he rejects the creation of Adam and Eve because they are made of clay, and he thinks these beings, these human beings that God creates, that Allah creates, are not worthy of God. And he refuses to bow down to humanity, and he makes a deal with Allah saying, you know, okay, I don't like this new creation you've made. Let me be in charge of tempting them and making sure they obey you. And God gives him that job. So, you know, Islam makes it very clear. And and that also you will find that in the Yazidi tradition, which is not exactly an Abrahamic tradition, but the figure of Melek Taus also is similar to the Iblis of Islam. And so, I, those are radically different concepts, but they are, if you look at biblical archaeology, they are not controversial. And yeah. and to get into, and then one other thing I should add, Lucifer, a lot of modern occultists say, I'm not a Satanist, I'm a Luciferian. This also doesn't make the least bit of sense, because the word Lucifer is also used in the Bible. It just means shining one, luminous one bringer of light, Jesus Christ is referred to as Lucifer in the Bible. There are, there are Christian hymns praising Jesus as Lucifer, and they're still part of Catholic dogma. Um, the word Lucifer in the Bible comes from a bad translation. They were talking about the planet Venus, which is the brightest star in the heavens, and and this fall of an angel from heaven, which is just Christian folklore created many centuries later. What the actual little paragraph about that is the fall of a Babylonian king, and they're comparing him to a star falling from heaven. Out of this little tiny kernel of a of a political critique of a Babylonian king, this whole nonsense about Lucifer, a fallen angel. None of that has any basis in history or mythology. That's all much later scare propaganda, basically created by the Catholic Church. And the one that um, you often hear about, uh, that people say, oh, this is the devil's first appearance, is the Garden of Eden story, isn't it? Where the serpent is often, in my opinion, misrepresented as, as as the devil. But if you actually look deeply into it, it doesn't appear to be the devil at all. Exactly. What, what, as I as I point out in the satanic screen, these there are only you know five or six brief little narrative episodes in this huge mess of the Old and New Testament that even tangentially refer to this being. And basically, what the Catholic Church did and other early forms of Christianity that didn't survive the Catholic massacre of other heretical versions of Christianity, what they did was take these disparate stories and connect them artificially to say, oh, these are all the same character. So the first one you have, which probably everybody, if you asked who's the devil in the Bible, would say that snake offering the forbidden fruit to Eve in in the Garden of Eden. Well, there's nothing, nothing at all to indicate that that is the Satan the devil or Lucifer. He is simply a snake. There is no there, and the snake, of course, in Middle Eastern and almost every ancient mythology is largely a positive symbol of wisdom. 
there there are Gnostic undercurrents to that whole story of Eve accepting wisdom from the serpent. However, they have absolutely nothing. He's not the devil. That is a, that's an interpretation that the later Catholic fathers of the church created to create this villain, which therefore would be because it's the Roman Catholic church was basically a political movement and political movements require something to hate, require an enemy. So they turned this very vague character into an enemy. So yeah, that snake is just a snake. Like Sigmund Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes <laughs> It's just a snake, and um, so you you know, and then now the the apocalyptic writings, which are much later, for instance, the Revelation, which is constantly cited. It it does. This is a later interpretation of of the Christian and Judaic and Islamic myth about this being. It does refer to Satan as a serpent that is thrown down into what is implied to be hell. Though there is nothing in the Bible anywhere, not even a trace that says Satan is this, you know, being in charge of hell. That's actually also a much later idea that very much comes from Dante's Inferno. As as I point out in another book that I wrote in the early 2000s, which is an anthology of satanic literature called Flowers from Hell, most of what people think of the devil comes from three or four literary works that were created long after the Bible. And those are Dante's Inferno, uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, which presents Lucifer as this sort of romantic, heroic, revolutionary figure, which he is not in any way presented as in the Bible, and and Goethe's Faust. And those are like the three arguably the three most important narratives in English, Italian, and German literature. They were the formative narratives of of modern of the modern literature of those countries. And that's where most modern people's idea of this being the devil comes from totally fictional sources. And then of course, as I cover in the satanic screen, really how much of what Satanists or Christians know about this very obscure minor being the satan comes from hollywood movies you know they 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 sort of take for granted that uh screenwriters inventions must have some bearing in fact but if you look deeply into it as i have they don't Mm. so i mean the pentagram all of the goat all of these things that are associated and and that satanists and and black metal fans you know are are fetishistically obsessed with there's really no historical context i mean they uh, actually at this wave gothic trap and a few years ago i met this couple who were from head to toe covered with satanic tattoos their clothing had pentagrams and devils and goats and pitchforks and horns and i said to them do you actually believe in this being that you've got you know tattooed all over your body and on every inch of your clothing and they said, oh, no, it's just, you know, it's just aesthetics. We just think it looks cool. And the the serious thing about this, why you need to know, if you're going to play with a spiritual being, symbolism and imagery, you better know what the hell, no pun intended, it is. Because you are opening a doorway to a real being. 
and it, it has repercussions. It has spiritual repercussions, but it's not what people think it is. It is bringing in the very malevolent energy of Yahweh, Jehovah, Allah. It has got very little to do with this minor being, the Satan. So that's the ironic thing, is all mm. these so-called Satanists are hooked into the spiritual energy of the God they supposedly hate. So <laughs> I like that. That's great. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, your own kind of occult journey, as it were? You, I believe you um, had an experience with a, was it a statue or some kind of um, effigy in your house when you were young. Oh, yeah, yeah yes, yes. My, er- my earliest spiritual experience, and in fact, uh, my earliest memory at all, what you're referring to, and since statues are so significant at the moment, yeah. <laughs> uh, a statue of Venus, mm, who right. I don't think they've torn down any statues of Venus yet, despite her white yeah. privilege. Give it a uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a statue of the Venus de Milo that my parents got on their honeymoon in Paris at the Louvre Museum, where the statue is housed. And it was on a lower shelf, and I was literally an infant, and I had this deep, rapt fascination with this image of the Venus de Milo. And I did, of course, I was not even able to speak yet, really. I didn't know who she was, what she was, but I was had a feeling of sacred devotion to this. And on an important level, this is one of the first things that made me really look into and understand rebirth and past lives. Because a little later, as I thought about it, it was familiar to me. This The image of Venus or Aphrodite was familiar to me, and I'm quite certain it was familiar to me from past experience as a magician dealing with Venus or Aphrodite, who still remains a part of my spiritual practice. So I had what is basically a classical mystical experience with this statue. It, it seemed to communicate to me. I, I had no even any concepts to know what a goddess was or what was even happening. And then when I was able to speak, I asked my father what it was. I had the weird idea that it was a relative for some reason, which is indicative of something. And he luckily had a classical education. So he told me to the degree that I could understand as a child, you know, the myth of Venus Aphrodite and her marriage to Mars and that she was the goddess of erotic love, etc. So that now that immediately gave me an awareness that, that spiritual beings communicate. I never had any doubt that deities exist, that they are intelligent, that they communicate, that they are not, as many occultists think, merely a projection or a a man-made eidolon, that they are independent intelligences of a much higher level of consciousness than humans. So I, I thought that from an early age. And also, it, it as I said, it started me looking into reincarnation. And then I became completely obsessed with Greek mythology at a very early age and Nordic mythology and studied it as if it was a matter of life and death to know, you know, the names of the gods and what and what their roles were. And I very much had the sense that I was relearning it. And that is what made me open to the Eastern 
ideas of reincarnation that I later, you know, fully studied and embraced and and understand to this day. Yeah, it's, it's interesting the uh, relearning thing. As I read um, sort of occult grimoires and things like that, I often have that strange sense of deja vu sometimes, even though there's no way I'd ever, you know, in this lifetime at least, had ever re- uh, you know read this text before. And there is definitely. Well, okay. yeah. it, it... It makes sense because according to the Buddhist tradition, whatever your spiritual experiences were from your past lives leave the strongest trace mm. on your mental continuum. So because they are probably very deep and ancient and something that goes back to many lives. So it makes sense that if you encounter a grimoire or a text you've, you've had experience in a past life, it would ring a bell with you. Mm. So how did you um, sort of move in from this kind of study of uh, uh, kind of Greek and Nordic kind of um, mythology? How did you uh, move from that into, I'm assuming there's probably some other stuff in between this, but how did you move from that into kind of Satanism, as it were? Devil worship? Yeah, well, devil worship. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was actually very, this Greek and, and Nordic obsession was early and intense. Um in the very early part of my childhood. And then, uh, and you mentioned before the interview, getting into the occult revival of the 1960s. Mm. And I've mentioned this before, so I'll just briefly give a summary of it. I had a babysitter in 1966, and that was really before modern witchcraft and Satanism were present. It was like right before there were, that started happening. Yeah. But she identified herself as a witch. Um, and she, and at the time people would find this hard to believe now to watch the old horror movies of the 1930s and even the newer at that time, hammer films of the sixties or that those productions, the only way you could see them, unless you went to the theater on television, they showed them very late at night after midnight, usually with some horror host introducing them. I don't know if you had that tradition in Britain, but in yeah, America... Yeah, we sort of did. We didn't have the um, the kind of Elvira type that would come up beforehand, but they, right. they would be shown sort of post-midnight kind of... Uh, right. Yeah, I used, I used to have to stay up late. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm talking about the mid-80s really here, but I'd, I'd have to stay right. up even then quite late to watch something like Blood and Satan's Claw or something like that. And yeah, it was... Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you, so well, also in Britain you had the X certificate where horror movies were actually not able to be seen by children. So that was very oh. different in America. But in either case, you couldn't see these films unless after they showed them after midnight on these horror host programs. And this babysitter who considered herself a witch let me watch them. Let me stay up to watch these films. And, terrible babysitter, man. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> right. And also, I have to point out, my parents were completely tolerant of it and not, you nice. know, they, they, they actually were bohemians who despised organized religion and they had no problem with me whatsoever looking into these things. You know, I had not even any awareness that there was anything negative about or that even that society considered anything strange or negative about it. Mm. So she, there was a particular thing as far as your question about the devil and how I went from Greek. I I would watch the mummy um, with Boris Karloff and she <laughs> would, 
She would treat it with as if we were having a university course in Egyptian mythology, mm. and she'd explain, this is the god Anubis, oh. this, is, this is where the mummy was. And, but she treated it totally seriously, and tr- it was like a education. So, I, you know, then we watched The Werewolf of London. She'd explain what a werewolf is, how you become one. And then Dracula, the Bela Lugosi 1931 version, this is the particular moment that led me to the devil, at least in this existence, was Renfield, played by Dwight Fry, is quoting the line from the Bram Stoker novel where he describes Dracula coming to him, to Dr. Van Helsing, and he says that Dracula said to him, all these things I will give you if you bow down to me and serve me, if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. And so the babysitter explained that is what the devil says to Jesus Christ in the Bible. And that got me then looking into that. What is this book called the Bible? And as a little kid in the 60s, I looked at the Bible as a source of information about the devil. That's how much of a bizarro world that I lived in. Um, I thought, okay, that, that's where I will get information. And, and I thought, you know, that sounded appealing to me. Like, okay, if you serve this being, you get whatever you want, which, uh, you know, from a childish perspective, that sounds great. So that was the turning point. And then it just happened to be right on the cusp of this occult revolution, like by the next year, 19 or, or two years later, 1968, you had Sympathy for the Devil with the Rolling Stones. You had mm-hmm. Rosemary's Baby coming out and you just had that year. And from pretty much 1968 to 1978, Two, you had a torrent of occult and diabolical and basically positive uh, reinforcement of Satanism and diabolic uh, cultism as a positive thing. So that, and I was, you know, completely a child of my times and was swept up in it and looked very deeply into it all. And I mean, one of the obvious um, examples of that was Crowley turning up on the cover of the Beatles album, wasn't it? He was prior to that was very um despised generally by uh every, you know if you ever read anything about crowley pre that era um it would off, it would you know be extremely negative and um yeah I, actually i gave a lecture last year about sonic magic and about how rock music of the 60s is really satanism in its popular form, would not have taken off, or occultism, mm. because of the almost religious devotion of millions of young people to the Beatles at that time, mm. which is, I think, unimaginable now. Uh, when you have when pop music culture is so fragmented into different genres, when you had every youth in the world looking at every Beatles cover to analyze its meaning. By having Aleister Crowley, that, that you know, people take Crowley far more seriously than I do. I, I don't think he was a great magician, and I think he was largely a narcissist and a fraud. But, <laughs> but by their whims, you know, they were just taking someone who, who British parents of their generation thought was the wickedest man in the world and sticking him on their record to piss people off, basically, you know. And, and people forget that John Lennon actually had Hitler on Sergeant Peppers. He's also there, but he's yeah. hidden behind yeah. the Beatles. Mm. So, they, you know, they, they this was not that the Beatles were serious telemites or occultists, as many 
conspiracy theorists like to believe. They just they picked a controversial figure from their parents' generation of of wickedness, you know, in a kind of uh, rebellious gestures typical of the psychedelic era. And that is that really is what led to the revival of Crowley. By 1967, so I wouldn't think he was even hated. He was actually forgotten. He had yeah, died 20 knew. years. He died 20 years earlier, other than a few Telemites, you know, in California and Switzerland. Very few people were aware of him. So that that Sergeant Peppers had a huge influence in, in creating what I think is a negative. Uh, awareness of Crowley. I think there are far more cogent and intellectually in-depth explanations of magic from many other sources. And I think it's unfortunate that because of his uh, drug addiction and and his, you know, you could easily see him as a proto-hippie, mm. that in the 60s, the counterculture adopted him as a prophet of, the, of, of hippiedom, mm. uh, ign- ignoring a lot of his far more unsavory characteristics and idealizing him yeah i think he certainly was um he was uh almost like a kind of kardashian of his time in a way wasn't he he did he caught he courted um he liked scandal he enjoyed scandal he enjoyed publicity and i think that acted as a kind of perhaps i mean now when we look back at him it that seems like a maybe a bit of a stupid thing to do for someone that was trying to build a you know a new eon and this kind of thing but i don't well, know i don't i don't I, I without I don't want to spend too much time on him, but I mean I I do believe well for I mean I'm serious I do believe he was just a traditional toxic narcissist. He I, to I, me Crowley wanted to be taken seriously as an author, as a poet, as a playwright, as a creative figure. But he frankly wrote doggerel. You know, some of his poems are mm. are acceptable, <laughs> but a lot of them are just Terrible. kitsch. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. on a very low level and he was not uh, he was not the shakespeare of his time that he liked to believe he was and i think like a lot of occultists he chose occultism rather to compensate for his failure as as a create he was not an art i mean look at his art his art tells you a lot about his mind it is mm. dismal yeah. it looks like the daubings of a retarded child Sorry, <laughs> but I've I've always felt like he's like he's he's probably a great magician. I just don't understand it. But <laughs> uh, but it's it's like well, you, you look at a person and you kind of like have to look at the fruits of what they have. You know, like he look like like you said, he's a narcissist. He pissed off everyone that's around him. He just said like really shitty stuff about people, and like you know, he died like fucking well, he, hated. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, he died. He died. People die hated for a reason. You know. <laughs> I mean, I'm hated by many people too, and you, you can be hated for good or bad reasons. If you tell the truth, you can I end guess up hated. I guess that's but true. I... Hatred alone isn't enough of a disqualifier, but considering that he based his whole philosophy on discipline and the will, uh, and he ended up a hopeless junkie who could not yes. even take his habit to heroin, which is also excused and rationalized by his devotees, but I mean, that to me is a clear indication this is someone with no control of their mind. And also, as you say, the fruits of a magician's actions is what you can look at to decide on their wisdom or value. Uh, all of the women he got involved with ended up insane, literally, some right. of them in insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, he abandoned them all. You know, he 
he mistreated most of his closest disciples, like Victor Newberg, uh, Israel Regardi. So, you know, yeah, it, it's very difficult. I, it's, it's, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are in the OTO, and I'm sure I'm pissing them off right now. But it's um, it's it's one of those things. It's weird because every Thelemite I've ever talked to about it, they always start with, now look, I know Crowley's a piece of shit. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. And it's, it's like, if you have to start that way, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're in the wrong place. That's what I always well, think. This is the interesting thing about a lot of these occult figures who are revered and i would include the late genesis peorage who also you're william burroughs well william burroughs i wrote an essay about him for a magazine called beatdom a while ago about burroughs occult influences and i used to admire him and he did have an influence on my thinking about writing literature and all of that but he's similar in that he professed an understanding of magic but again he was a hopeless junkie who couldn't control his mind so you know i think he was more talented and uh, and had more to say than crowley burroughs but ultimately he was a failed magician and a lot of it's strange most of these occult figures who are revered like genesis peorage who was if not more abusive and more of a narcissistic exploiter of people or as much as Crowley was and a misogynist who mistreated his partners greatly and and I believe even led to the death of one of them. Mm. Um, It's funny how all these rebels and occult subculture types who pride themselves on being antinomian rebels, you can't say a bad word about the sacred cows that they revere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, God I, damn it. I guess I'm the opposite in some ways, and I do rate Crowley as a magician, but I, I I do definitely acknowledge the fact that he was a bit of a prick, um, and that yeah, I completely also agree about his poetry. It was terrible. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of a. Well, I think this is this is part of a general thing I was referring to about our living in a dark age. Mm. Once it wouldn't even be a controversial thing if somebody's ethics are crap then that is not a person who has wisdom who, mm. that you want to follow. If they are if they are a lying, unethical piece of shit who, who has left damage wherever they've gone, you can't say, oh, well, yeah, that's true, but look at this poem he wrote. It, <laughs> yeah, true. You know, you, right, you right. Know, I yeah. think these the, the, the bar has sunk so low that people don't, they don't want to be too judgy to use the horrible modern world of word about oh. character. And character is very important when it comes to spiritual matters. If someone that, is unethical. It's that it, thing it, too that I was talking about earlier, right? Where you're um you kind of attach your ego to something and people have attached their ego to Crowley. It's it just because like just because Crowley sucks or <laughs> if let's say Crowley sucks. If Crowley sucks, that doesn't mean that the things that you've learned from Crowley are useless or that you suck. You know what I mean? Right. Well, you uh, you have to look historically. What were the sources of his information? Where did he get the information that he gave? A lot of it was was not even historically valid at the time. But mm-hmm. yeah, I could I could uh, in in the book that Zena and I wrote in the early two thousands, Demons of the Flesh, mm-hmm. we have a whole chapter critiquing Crowley. So rather than my uh, expressing my venom about him, you can read it. It's all all better composed <laughs> there. Yeah, it's a um, it's a book I'm about halfway through at the moment. It's really, really good. Um, uh, the 
One, okay, so how did you become involved with Anton LaVey? This is, uh, you know, obviously a large, a lot of people would have become aware of you via this kind of connection. Um, right. It's not, I have to say it's not, it is something of very little importance to me. I understand the people that are fascinated with that whole milieu. It is it's of, of extreme importance, but I have to make it clear it's, it was a two-year episode of my life, and that's it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so how I met him, and there, again, as I've said, I have been the object of many conspiracy theories from Christian, Satanists, occultists. Uh, I think generally people have the false idea that I was a devotee of LeVay or a member of his church and that I became involved with the Church of Satan organization, and that none of that is remotely true. I was writing a book called The Demonic Revolution, and I started working on that in late 1987 when the satanic panic was just really getting underway. And this, the, uh, the demonic revolution, which I never published because I changed my mind about the subject in general, was an overarching exploration of modern occultism in general. And I interviewed Odinists. Uh, I got to know Richard Ramirez through it. Zena spoke to Robert de Grimston, the founder of the Process Church, uh, interviewed Telemites, witches, every, every possible Michael Bertial, who is a fairly well-known in occult circles as like the most the, the modern neo-voodoo priest. Uh, I spoke to many of the Asatru people, most of the practicing magicians. I, I engaged in a correspondence with Kenneth Grant, who was Crowley's heir apparent, if you're aware, with uh, from the Typhonian OTO. Yeah, he passed away uh, a few years ago, didn't he? Uh, right. Well, right. Um, so, so those I, uh, you know, so I did a lot of, as I do with every book, a lot of intensive research by contacting people firsthand and interviewing them. And Forrest J. Ackerman, who was the editor of the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland, had known LeVay since the 50s, long before he was a Satanist or, or had founded his business, the Church of Satan. And he was invited to Ackerman's 70th birthday party, and it was arranged that I could meet him and interview him for the book. And all I wanted to know about for the book, I wasn't particularly interested in LeVay. I didn't believe in LeVayan Satanism because I a priori rejected the idea of LeVayan Satanism, that the devil doesn't exist and is right. merely a symbol. So I never, I never did believe that. I was cultnic by LeVay's standards. I mean, I was doing traditional ceremonial evocation and invocation, not, was not a symbolic psychodrama to me. So all I wanted to know from him were two things. At that time, very little was known about the rumors that Susan Atkins had been involved with him in 1967. And I wanted to to get the details about that because there had been so much false information about that before she met Manson that she had worked as a stripper for his topless witches review. And I wanted to interview him about the, there's a chapter in the satanic rituals called the Elektrische Vorspiele, which presents itself as a German occult rite from the 1920s. Uh, 
and it says that it, it that he went in the book he claims to have gone to berlin in 1945 at the end of the war and seen these forbidden occult satanic films that had this ritual in them and those are the only two things i wanted to ask him about and he ended up not coming to this birthday party so when i moved to san francisco in 1988 um i he had he knew about me through Kenneth Anger, who had sent him some clippings about Radio Werewolf, and then a mutual friend invited him to come over to my apartment, and I interviewed him the very first night about those things, and became fr- friends with him. But I never joined the Church of Satan. He made me an honorary member, and at that time I was often in the media and on television. And so, you know, anyone who could be of a promotional help to him, he gave an honorary membership card. Later, he gave one to Marilyn Manson and Genesis Peorich and other other musicians. So that, you know, that was no extraordinary thing. I was never deeply involved with it. And the, the thing is, I fell in love with his daughter and became his son-in-law. That That is why, you know, we got connected, ultimately. Um so then what led to our, well, now I should say in our very first meeting, I asked him about the supposed trip to Berlin in 1945. He would have been about 15 years old then. And I found it very hard to understand how a, an American kid was allowed into wartime Berlin and to see a, to see films. And I asked him about it and he lied immediately. And I, <laughs> When I knew what I was dealing with was like a Baron Munchausen fabulous who has created a bunch of anecdotes that really aren't true. And he didn't even do it with any conviction. So I said, can you, in all naivete, I said, can you tell me about your trip to Berlin in 1945 and these films you saw? And all he said to me was, all I can remember is that there were ruined Volkswagens everywhere. What? Now, I have, because I happen to be an aficionado on German history of that period, he said that to the wrong person because I happen to know that the Volkswagen was never built. It was a prototype that Hitler designed to be, it would have been called the, um, the Kraftwerk Freude Wagen. Um, the joy, strength through joy Wagen that was designed to, so that ordinary Germans could have this cheap car, but it was, it, once the war started, they were never built. It was the famous design was only a prototype. It wasn't only after the war in the fifties that they started to manufacture them. So I knew, well, that's simply not true. And <laughs> he's like, there's jelly donuts everywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and how could that be all you remember? I mean, Berlin was a smoking, burning room corpses laying in the street but you just remember the car so i i managed to be friendly with him we had a lot in common musically actually as i explained in the in the in recent interview in zazen magazine a lot of our friendship was based on playing synthesizers and the organ <laughs> you know our mutual interest was really music uh we didn't have the same spiritual beliefs whatsoever nor did he care about that did did he have did he have spiritual beliefs at all really i mean it always from what i've read about him it felt like it was a 
a useful kind of guise almost rather than a spiritual pursuit. I, I, no, he did not. He did not believe that there was a spiritual world. I mean, he did not believe that there were gods, demons, supernatural entities. He truly believed that the devil was simply a symbol of carnality. He talked, I mean, we talked about magic a lot, and uh, he had a vague idea that there was a a force in nature that he called Satan. But that's, you know, that's very far from having a spiritual belief. And he didn't really do rituals except for show. I mean, he was a, uh, people say he was a showman, but that's almost, you know, over-exaggerating what he did. He had like a cheap carnival act. His house, yeah, his house was the sideshow attraction. And Everything he did, like a satanic wedding, a satanic funeral, a satanic baptism, was just for the customers. He himself personally didn't think about those things or give a damn about them. He was putting on a show, and it was like a low-budget Scientology. He made his money through memberships uh, into this church, and so he paid $100 to see this carnival act. Mm. basically i remember when we had when we had isaac bonwitz on the show um he was telling i asked him about the you know the famous televised uh black mass that was uh i can't remember what what tv show it was on but you know it's a very famous clip of it, was, it was it was in it was in satanus it wasn't on yes. tv it was yes. actually yes. A yes. Film. that's it yeah yeah that's right Isaac bonwitz is actually filmed in it yeah 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 he looks really out of place in it as well doesn't he i remember he looks he looks very young and kind of it's almost like you have all these kind of um, classical, kind of occult-looking, uh, you know, uh, actors almost within this thing, and then you have this one guy that looks a bit like Woody Allen, just sort of random <laughs> in, in the middle of it, and that size it bombs. But he was saying um, that, that 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 Black Mass um, was just completely made up, almost on the spot, or slightly, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, the whole, the whole thing was like a show. Well, I mean, uh, LeVay's followers, who are as fanatical and dogmatic in their worship of him as Scientology members are of L. Ron Hubbard, and I would say he is the figure, historically, you could compare him to the most. He is he's the Hubbard of occultism, except on a much lower budget and never, never succeeded as a con man to the degree that Hubbard did. But they're very similar in their looking for celebrities to give some weight to their cult, um, and they're make, making up of their biography entirely. They're, they really, they are so similar. They're very typical American snake oil, snake oil salesmen, um, and very, very typical of, of the current leader of America, just a, you know, narcissistic, lying uh, snake oil salesman in the traditional sense. In um, the satanic screen, one thing I felt, found really interesting the, of the sections i have read is that you speak about the act of making a film uh and and filmmaking as a kind of magical device almost like a you know it's a magical act in itself filmmaking yeah uh, um would you say that same principle applies to music related to um oh so, absolutely yeah i mean i've given many lectures in recent years explaining things that I referred to vaguely in the 80s and 90s. I have given a series of public talks about what I call sonic magic. And, um, you know, my my music is part of my spiritual practice. And similar, similarly, in, in the same way that 
when you take a photograph and especially when you take a film, a moving film capturing a moment in time and a human being or whatever, whatever the photograph or film is capturing, you are taking a chunk of reality into that film. And you, from a magical point of view, you are creating a transformation, whether you know it or not. Anyone who takes a photograph is performing a spiritual act. And so-called primitive people understood this as, you know, as notoriously tribes people who encountered the first cameras didn't want their picture taken because they felt that it would steal their soul. Well, there's there is an aspect of truth to that. Um, so that I would I have said this before that the invention of the photograph and the motion picture camera and tape recording are magical acts that really transformed the practice of magic and even transformed reality itself. Because when you make when you record a song or when you make a film, you are creating a fully believable alternate reality that is permanently. I mean, before the 19th century, you couldn't do that. You couldn't permanently create something that was a moving, living uh, manifestation of your vision. Mm. And through music and film, you can change reality. And inadvertently, many people have changed reality. So, and I would say the same, the same thing is true of writing. There, you could Writing fiction very often connects to a spiritual realm. And this is something that I think was worthwhile in Burroughs' work, is that he realized writing was a magical act. And filmmaking, all of the arts come from magic, come from spiritual practice, dance, music, theater. Their roots are, are all in religion. And so they, they were originally spiritual practices that have become secular. So absolutely, yeah, film and music and all of the arts are a ma magical manifestation and can be used in a ritual sense to change reality. So what do you th what do you think is the mechanism? Is it that like you're creating a microcosm in like a song, say? And yes, exactly. And exactly. you're going yes. in and changing things in the song and that's forcing the macrocosm to change? Right. It, well, it can work in different ways. I would say you're absolutely right in that any work of art is a microcosm of the macrocosm and just the traditional uh, esoteric maxim as above, so below, and sympathetic magic. If you, if you make a, I mean, on the most primitive level, if someone makes a stick figure and it's supposed to be Bob Smith and you erase the stick figure, depending yes. on your state of mind, you are erasing Bob Smith himself. Mm. So on a much more complicated level, by making a song and all of the emotional depths and levels that you reach and spiritual levels, because music is the most spiritual of the art forms because it's actually invisible. The sound that you make that creates an emotional effect on the musician and the listener doesn't even exist except as a sound wave. So it is of all the art forms, music is the closest to being a spiritual phenomenon. So therefore, it's even more powerful than film. But film, yeah, all, all of these. But I think, yeah, to get to what you're saying, it is a microcosm. And therefore, if you are a ritual magician and you understand the mechanics of how reality works, 
you are creating an alternate universe, and that alternate universe takes a life of its own in this particular level of reality that we're in, and it changes it. With um, could you talk a little bit about kind of your own, you know, musical magical work, and in particular, you did a there was a process you went through called the Werewolf Order, I think, and Werewolf Radio, the band. Right. Um, right. Was right. it was this a kind of inclusive kind of magical work in then? Yeah, the Radio Werewolf began in 1984, and even the roots of it began a little earlier than that. And it it started as a deliberate... Dur- during the Ronald Reagan era in the 1980s, there had been this born-again Christian and moral majority-created reaction to so-called occult influences in music. And there was a lot about backward masking the conspiracy theories of that time that have mutated into the madness of today, but they were all, all the, all the um, basic elements were present that, you know, that there's an evil satanic leak in the entertainment industry and in the music business that are sending out occult signals to, and, and corrupting the youth of the world and leading them into occult debauchery and decadence through, through hidden messages in the music. and. At first, Radio Werewolf, part of what it was designed was a parody and a mockery of all that. And I had I had been in Egypt, and I had an experience with sound that would be too complicated to explain in the brief time we have at an, Egypt, at an Egyptian tomb of Seti I, a pharaoh of Egypt. And I understood something about sound that then pushed me to come back to America to create this thing. But it started as, a, like, I set out to create the thing that Christians feared, to make Radio Werewolf the very epitome of the satanic, backward, uh, masking, mind-controlling <laughs> thing. And then it took on its life of its own because I was young and inexperienced and only really learning uh, as I went how magic operates. I was, But what I was doing was it was fairly dangerous in that it was a public magical ritual disguised as a band. Hmm. And I used the performances for ritual purposes, but I didn't come right out and say that. I hinted at it, and, the, and it played a thin line between self-parody and a kind of trickster um, alternate reality. And and then what happened is it became real, and it did become cult-like, and it did become actually dangerous. And and as I've said before, it got to the point where the concerts, as they became more intense because of the ritual magic involved with it, became like every concert had the mood of Altamont waiting to happen, as I've said before. And so it unleashed a spiritual power. And it, the the whole thing was not really a, a band so much as a ongoing nine year ritual. Mm. And so the just to sort of separate the two, so the radio werewolf was the musical. Where, the, the werewolf radio werewolf was the outer form of it as a band, and also really as a parody of cult and rock music and in many ways it was a satire that that played itself straight 
we had at first organization called the Radio Werewolf Youth Party when we began, and that mutated a few years later into the Werewolf Order, which then became a serious initiatory body. Mm. And so the so the Werewolf Order was the, so to speak, initiatory school behind Radio Werewolf. Radio Werewolf and Video Werewolf, which is what I produced the film Charles Manson Superstar on, were the outer manifestations of the inner circle. Why Werewolf? Well, I personally, ha- I mean, that if, if I have an animal totem, it is the werewolf. So, I mean, that, that on a personal level, that's a deep um, psychic connection to me, to wolves and to the werewolf in particular. And my cancer. Not, not the wolf, the werewolf, huh? The werewolf specifically, not, not, not the usual animal, but the werewolf. And so uh, all of my life, I've been completely immersed in the lore of lycanthropy. Um, so that on a personal level, but also radio werewolf, literally the symbol of using music to transform mm. is symbolically why I use that particular phrase. So the one one person you mentioned earlier who I'm massively a fan of and interested in was Kenneth Anger. Do you... Uh, um, did he have an influence on you or vice versa or was there some kind of because he's his films were very much um kind of they were talismanic almost weren't they yeah sort of like what i was saying about how it's hard to believe these days when every film is available that the classic horror films were hard to see in the 60s the films of kenneth anger in you know in the late 60s and early 70s when i first even heard of him you know you, this was on a, in a very obscure underground you really could it would be very difficult to find the films at that time so they had an allure and a glamour and an almost forbidden um mystique that they don't have now with that they have been you know widely seen and imitated and copied by very mainstream figures at that time they hardly had any real existence in the mainstream world so Yes, they had a big influence on me, I would say, in my, you know, later childhood and, and adolescence. Because he, like Burroughs, he was one of the few artists who was consciously and outwardly describing his artistic process as magical. And, you know, even even speaking about the magical language of film. So, yeah, he had an influence at that time. And then uh, in the actually, I met him the first time again through the same person I mentioned with Anton LaVey, Forrest J. Ackerman. At that same birthday party, LaVey was supposed to attend. Me and the drummer of Radio Werewolf entered the ballroom where Forrest J. Ackerman was holding his birthday party, and Ken Anger walked in and he came up to us, and we were Radio Werewolf at that time. And I remember he said, do you know where Neil Jordan is? He's the director of the Company of Wolves. Do you know where he is? And and from that, we started a discussion. And then, uh, yeah, and I spoke to him. And then I got to know him much better through Zena, who uh, Zena is his godchild. And she had known him since his childhood. So, 
I know a great deal about him, and I've met him several times, but he influenced me when I was younger. The more I got to know him as a human being, I can't say I am impressed with his magical knowledge, really. I think it's fairly superficial and symbolic and aesthetic. I don't, that doesn't take away from the power of his better early films, but I can't, you know, like a lot of people who influence you when you're a teenager, when you look deeper into them, it's more a question that you didn't really know who they were. And and mm -hmm. like many people I've met whose work I admired, you start to see the flaws in it. Mm -hmm. But he certainly had influence. The idea of using art as magic, which is one of the informing principles of my work, certainly that influenced it. Yeah. Um, so you... But the uh, well, one thing, uh, as far as like what we were talking about Crowley, the problem to me, the problem with anger is Hollywood Babylon and and his interviews and books are just filled with lies. He mm -hmm. just makes bullshit up off the top of his head, whatever is scandalous or shocking, and he doesn't care if it's true. He just cares if it's a good story. Mm. And magically and spiritually, that is very harmful. Mm and dangerous to yourself I, and others. I never heard that. I mean, I guess I don't really know a ton about uh, Hollywood Babylon, actually, but... Well, yeah, mo I mean, a lot of people look at that as magnum opus, but most of it is simply not true. You really? know, people... Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... to me, as with Crowley, that... Now, a lot of people would say, oh, who cares? It's fun. But, you know, I, I do take truth seriously. Yeah. And historical especially with spiritual matters if you're a spiritual person then truth should be important mm. so obviously radio werewolf ended the uh well it's at least you haven't released as as radio werewolf in a while um no, no. It, it was a ritual that ended in 1993 it ran from 84 to 93 and this year actually we were going to do a 35th anniversary concerts to celebrate it but you know people always want me to have a reunion or to start it again because that's the way the music business works is whatever you did first they want you to keep banging that drum forever and i'm very firm it was a particular ritual that was intended for a particular time and conditions and it has you know it, it still has rever reverberations to this day and people still are caught up in it and are just even learning about it now as because of the internet, younger generations continue to get enthralled by it, but it's over, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's effect, it's echo remains, but it, you, you can't return to the same river twice. So I guess that leads me to like, cause we've had you on for, for a bit, you know, been very generous with your time, but I feel we should, uh, we should probably close out the interview talking about what you're kind of up to at the moment in terms of music and, and ritual, I suppose. Um, obviously, you've moved away from, um, you know, the more occult um, influences, and you're now interested in um, uh, tantric Buddhism, I believe. Well, that the I I wouldn't. I mean, as a tantric Buddhist, there certainly is an influence of that in my music, but I don't hit people over the head with it, and I don't. It's not like uh, I'm. I'm a musician who happens to be a tantric Buddhist, but I don't use music particularly and outwardly as as any kind of conversion process. And I also didn't do that even when I was a Satanist with Radio Werewolf. Um, 
there it's still art for art's sake you can take the music that i make on whatever terms you experience it as mm. so i don't i don't see it as a it has a spiritual content and certainly um my music still is immersed in magic, which I would say is different than occultism. Mm. Magic is just an ancient part of the human mind and of all consciousness. Occultism, what I've rejected, is the organized and usually corrupt human political effort to contain magic in some sort of um, personal collective that's what i've rejected but magic i still remain a practitioner of magic but we all are everybody is doing magic all the time it's just that most people don't know what they're doing so that you change the kind of the mode i suppose rather than the uh um right i mean there there are certainly still i mean my music is my music it's still recognizably anyone who hears radio werewolf will still hear uh, whatever distinctive trademarks there are in my music. So, you know, there's definitely a continuity. It's just that that was a different ritual for a different time. And what I'm doing now with with my most recent full album, which was The Illusionist, which came out in August of last year in Los Angeles, I gave a um, lecture and showed my film Charles Manson Superstar on its 30th anniversary on the... 50th anniversary of the La Bianca murders. And actually it was right around the corner from the Waverly house where that happened. And at the end of that talk and screening, I premiered my, my album, the illusionist, which you can certainly find magical and Buddhist themes and spiritual themes on if you are aware of them, but you can take it, as I said, on its own merits and then just, on July 4th, I released the EP that you mentioned before, um, Shrek 2020, I'm Afraid of America. <laughs> I love that title. Um, it seems particularly uh, uh, prescient at the moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know Kanye West is trying to be my competitor. As <laughs> so do you have any, um, do you have any new writings in the, in the, you know, yeah, I have. I have. I announced in 2017, right before the death of my late friend, Mr. Manson, um, the man, the final edition of the Manson file. And I thought that I would be able to publish it right after that. But there was a huge and ugly battle for his estate and even for his corpse. And because it has not been settled yet, I am waiting and there, there are recent developments that I have spoken about. I have a closed Facebook group completely dedicated to the research of Mansonology called the Manson File. And um, you can find out more information about that there. But that that's the next major written work that will be coming out. There's also a book about the god of Braxis that I will be releasing later this year. Um, and I've got novels and other literary works. And in fact, because COVID-19 has prevented me from performing musically or doing the tour that we were planning to do later this year, I will probably, by necessity, uh, be doing much more writing because it's it's uh, obviously doesn't require an audience or social distancing to present a novel or a book. Yeah. So, I mean, um, 
What was I going to say? I completely just lost my train of thought there. My bad. <laughs> yeah, so I, it would be it would be easier if we could do the interview and I told you what you were going to say and then oh, answer. Oh yeah, it. there you go. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, make our, our job a whole lot easier. Um, so, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Right? Okay, sorry. So when the Satanic Scream was re-released recently in Germany, um, is that only available in German, or is that uh, yeah? Because. Yeah, yeah. A British company has expressed interest in printing it, but because of the whole, again, the whole Corona thing has sort of put everything on standstill. So hopefully next year it will be that that version slightly updated with a few things that came out since the last edition in English will come out. And that will have this very definitive explanation of what the devil actually is, which you were both referring to. Yeah, and it's an excellent, uh, excellent section. This is... I just think that yeah, that'll be a, a a great one to put out in English, definitely as well. Because I was really, I've been looking for it, and the old version goes for ridiculous amounts of money. It's, you know, as these kind of things tend to do. I've, I think I saw it for like hundred and right. hundred and sixty pounds. Which is, yeah, uh, yeah, all the, all of, all of my books command insane prices that people very often get angry at me and assume that I have said <laughs> as if I earn a penny from the from yeah. these, prices, but. Yeah, so, um, most of my books will will be back. I mean, the German edition of the Satanic Screen, the final edition of the Manson File. Um, you know, I'm hoping that early next year, when th- I, I really don't want to do these until I can go out and promote them properly and do proper signings and lectures to promote them. But we'll see what happens if the world survives till next year. Hopefully, that will be possible. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us such a generous lump of your time. Um, and uh, yeah, we look forward to speaking to you again. I'd love to have you back on maybe to talk about Charles Manson at some point. So that would be, uh, yeah, excellent. Right. It, was, it was my pleasure. There's no no end of subjects we could discuss. So thank you for having me and many blessings to you. And this happens to be the Dalai Lama's birthday. So as part of the tantric Buddhist tradition, he asked us, to spread the mantra of compassion, Om Mani Pema Hum. So I will conclude on that note.